It's that time again. We go beyond the jive. Join our hosts, John Swan and Natalie B. Brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. All you hive jive junkies out there, this is the hive jive. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm, I am, I am biting my tongue because I am a little bit disheartened with um, the way things seem to go in this day and age. Um, everybody out there, you've all heard <laughs> many times over me talk about my thoughts on specific influencers and how they are influencing people in the wrong way. And we just got word the other day that, well, actually, I, I told you, um, I am, I am, uh, I make a guest appearance on a TV show that is that is going to be coming out. It's the Charlie you, D Company. Yay! Uh, yeah. So I think it's episode two, and it's the the title of the show is also the title of his business, but it's Charlie B Company, and it's currently, if you are in Texas, you can find it on the Austin Public Television. PBS network. Um, if you are not, but you're in the United States, I believe it goes wide release to American public television in the end of March, like the end of this month or the end of April, one or the other. So everybody will be able to see it pretty soon. And I'm sure now that it's in the States, because those of us, those of you listening to us from like Australia, you've already got to see it because you guys have been sending messages over and making quotes and comments. And I'm like, it's not fair because I don't even know what it looks like. It was released there first. Yeah, they got to see it first and I still haven't seen it at all. Um, Charlie did send me a link though so that I can I can go through and finally view it. Um, oh. But can I get that being said, we just got news that another individual you've heard me talk about before on the podcast who is often referred to as he who shall not be named. <laughs> That's true. Who, does all of these horrific things and horrible screw up jobs when it comes to bee removals and the way that uh, beekeeping is portrayed, that individual basically did a straight up ripoff of Charlie's TV show that's on PBS, pitched it to a major network mm -hmm. and got picked up. And so now this major, and it's not just a national, it is unfortunately a global network that I thought had more integrity than this, has picked up this show that is, I feel like gonna ultimately end up kind of being like Tiger King for beekeeping. Um, and, or as, as you said, Natalie, he's kind of the Jerry Springer of beekeeping. <laughs> It rhymes to Jerry Springer or beekeepers. Yeah, yeah. it just it just kind of. But so I'm a, I'm a little saddened that that is the state of our world, that it is those individuals that end up getting to represent all beekeepers. And yeah, I, I do understand some of the appeal of, you know, like the, the Tiger King thing was like a train wreck and people watched it because you just couldn't look away. But this individual is going to be showing examples of things that are not safe and doing things that are not ethical. <laughs> and that's going to be what everybody in the world gets to see about, oh, if you're a beekeeper or if you do bee removals and things like that. And it's just, it just, 
makes me lose my faith in humanity sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to detach reality from um, TV sometimes. And it's important for everybody to remember, just as is the same for TikTok or Instagram or anything like that, that a lot of that is actually staged. Um, I was at the Mother, Mother Earth News uh, Fair a couple of weekends ago, and uh, this lady had been picked up by uh, one of the shows to do the, you're like, why are you doing this? But this lady actually was very legit and she was building um, Adobe mud cob houses, cob, her home her own home she built from scratch with cob which is basically mud and she got picked up by the network who paid for some of her um you know expenses or donated some of the wood but with that comes strings attached and a lot of that becomes scripted just like all those reality tv shows you know uh, the the housewives of whatever and and the um uh what you call that the shows there was one in austin not that long ago with the young people where they all live in the same house i forget what the name is but uh, not real, a real world did real I think, world a and then the there. bachelors and yeah. all this stuff right a lot of that is actually scripted and it the is. participants don't really react the natural the way they would um if they hadn't been hired by the show so it's the same thing with that kind of thing well it's so and i again i haven't got to see the episode that i was in but i can absolutely vouch for that prospect or not prospect that perspective because did that entire thing go the way that a normal bee removal would have gone? No. I think it and, does. And did everything happen in the order <laughs> or even in the way you hear it in the way that it, it really did? No, because they're going to chop it up and they're going to rearrange it and they're going to put like, you know, right before the commercial break, you might hear or see something that makes you be like, oh my God, because they want you to stay there through the mm -hmm. commercials and and see what happens next and the goal is not reality the goal is entertainment yes and so time. you have people that don't have experience in the field of expertise that is being you know demonstrated or the circumstances that are being demonstrated and they script it yeah. they script it for you and you have actually very little um uh what do you call that creative license uh, creative freedom license. Yeah. In, yes, exactly. Into the process, you become hostage of the entire programming slash uh, filming crew and well, editor. Yeah, even even in even in movies and stuff like that, you know, you may have a director and he's got a very specific vision or she has a very specific vision and you've got the writer and they've got a specific vision and then the monster corporation comes in and right. the, the the studio then says, but we want this person or we want this action or we prefer this and it it screws up the whole story because then they're doing it because somebody has paid them or they're going to get more <laughs> views or whatever you know from that one thing but and that's that's understandable to a degree because even in charlie's show everything that we did was still legitimate like we had yeah. to take a power hammer to a ginormous stone wall and mm -hmm. get these bees out of this cavity and we legitimately did it and we didn't know, like we had shown up once before and did an evaluation of the site and did a thermal reading of the wall and talked to the homeowners to make sure that they understood what was going to happen. 
Right. That was it. We didn't open up the cavity. We had no idea what we were going to find. We didn't know how big it was or small it was going to be or anything. You didn't than, open it up first and then pretend you were opening it again. We didn't, we didn't do like some of those TikTokers <laughs> who happened to flip over this board that's already been cut and loose and know exactly where the queen just happens to be on that comb because it was staged. So those things are not staged. Like when we went through and we did our stuff, those were not staged. But there are some things that are said that would not have been said otherwise where, you know, like for instance, Charlie at one point, really makes it sound like he's going to give up. And mm -hmm. he's like, I just don't think we can do this. And, no, and my response, don't give up very much. Exactly. Yes. And my response was a very legitimate response. And it was the more parental. I was like, nope, because you're here working with me. And when we start <laughs> something, we finish it. We don't leave it undone. Right. We are going to keep going until it's done. You know, like, and that was legit because <laughs> that, right. that, that's the same John that when somebody calls him and says, hey, so I tried to do my first removal and I opened up this house and the bees chased me two miles down the road. What do I do? And I say, suck it up and get your ass back over there and finish what you started. <laughs> right. And we know that Charlie would have done that. Charlie it's absolutely just, would never yeah. walk away and leave something open, but he yeah. said it because of the drama factor That's and right. i love i love charlie he's a great guy i'm actually going to do an episode on the main segment podcast with charlie when it gets a little bit closer to yeah oh, his show being released on the national stage for for the united states so um he didn't invite me he said i need to get you on the show so i don't know if you'll follow through with that we'll see well, he's, he's, working on, he's working on a second season right now and and he he probably will absolutely try to get you in there for certain um, but again, it's also one of those, like, you could take six different removal jobs and pack them into one episode if they're all very small and not anything exciting happens, you know, and then one big job could take up two episodes. So it's, it's all, it's all in the editing. <laughs> it's all in the editing. <laughs> yeah, but it anyhow, is. It's changed a narrative quite a bit. It, it, it can. Now the, 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 to bring this back to my original point though, is it's one thing when when the narrative is tweaked because of the production and things like that. It's another thing, though, when the individual star of the show is already a crook and does things <laughs> backwards. And, and yeah, I said that. I'm glad you're not naming anybody, John. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, it's just when you have cease and desist orders against you, when you have restraining orders against you, when you've had multiple lawsuits against you, that is not the individual that you want up there representing beekeepers on a global stage. And so, yeah. Um, anyhow, this is a, this is a, a bit of a, a hard transition, but not really because we did manage to draw a parallel here somewhere, but when you select for certain things, you then therefore breed for certain things. And if we <laughs> continue selecting these types of individuals because they are a character and putting them up there to represent the rest of us, we will continue giving the rest of us all a bad name and having everybody else think that that must be what all beekeepers are. So there's always consequences. Right. So let me rephrase that in the terms of the beekeeping world. Yeah. Now you when can pull you, us back to where we should you, be. <laughs> when you breed for something in the world of bees, there's a cost associated to it. It's better to breed against things that you do not want uh, to improve the genetic pool. If you bring four things, you're gonna have, you're gonna give up a whole lot on the table 
And that's going to be the cost associated to that um, uh, advantage, quote unquote, that you're trying to go for. There's a cost and There's it's very obvious and it's very expensive usually. Yeah. And, and so a great example of that. And now we, we were we are transitioning to beekeeping. So you guys can listen to actual beekeeping knowledge discussions <laughs> between two beekeepers now. Um, so a great example of that is the Varroa sensitive hygienic strain of bees. When they came up with that line of bees, they were specifically looking for bees that had these hygienic traits that would hopefully help a colony to do better with grooming themselves, getting rid of mites, maybe even chewing at the mites and biting at them and things like that. But along that process, they had just, um, <laughs> I just lost that word. They, I, I had it, I had it again and then it went away. They managed to show, I'm just gonna, we're just gonna skip that word that I'm trying to say in my head because it's not coming out. Demonstrate, that was it, demonstrate. There you go, that's they a complicated managed, word, John. I don't know why I couldn't get that. They managed to demonstrate that it could be taken too far. And when they were selecting for these hyper, literally hyper hygienic traits, they ended up with a colony that was so hyper hygienic that it focused the majority of its time cleaning, uncapping cells and removing larvae than it did doing all of the other tasks it should do. And there was a failure to thrive because right. it was overly efficient at that hygienic behavior. Yeah, and that that one thing ended up outshining all of the other stuff. Um, another example of that in, in a very loose terminology could be the scutellata genetics that go through and they cause that hyper-defensive behavior. Well, mm -hmm. that hyper-defensive behavior could be linked to also a hygienic trait. But when you're focusing on the hygienic trait, if they are directly linked, you could also be increasing the proportion of the defensive trait as well in direct proportion to the hygienic trait. So there's there's all these little trade-offs that you could end up having. You could have a colony that does amazing at say propolis, but then they, they propolize everything to the point that it's no longer feasible for you to be able to get into the colony, but the colony is super healthy. Um, you could have a colony that is super, super aggressive at gathering nectar and bringing that in and storing it. But maybe something else falls by the wayside when you went through and, and pushed just for that. And it's hard because we tell beekeepers all the time, if you're gonna raise your own queens, obviously we don't have a scientific lab. We're not looking at things and dissecting them under a microscope. You're just a beekeeper out there and you've got two or three colonies in your backyard. And you know that one of those colonies is super docile and always gives you an amazing harvest and they're easy to work with. So right. naturally, when you choose to raise queens, we're going to tell you, raise them from your favorite colony, from your best colony that exhibits all of the traits that you want to have. But even in doing that, you can still shoot yourself in the foot because like the best of intentions, you know, no good deed well, goes unpunished sometimes. <laughs> and it's a genetic bottleneck in the end. If you're always raised from only these, I always say breed against bad traits instead of for good traits. The problem is that everything is a balance with the superorganism and their genetics. You have, if you, if you're wanting to increase one, something else got to give. There's a, in my opinion, there's a finite amount of resources or, or uh, things that the bees can do to help themselves. And if you are, uh, it's not a zero sum game per se, but in, in general, 
there's going to be a cost associated to things that you're trying to promote. Uh, if you're trying to promote a resistance, there's going to be a cost associated to that. They might not be as efficient foragers. Uh, they might not be, you know, they might be higher propolizers, which for some beekeepers is not a good thing. It all depends. And I really love that presentation from Dr. Stewart on the Texas Beekeepers Association uh, School um, that was talking about his research uh, on, in that subject of evolution, basically amongst uh, not just honeybee, but he's a, like an evolutionary entomologist. And he was mentioning that um, uh, that cost resistance was uh, showing up in form of um, uh, investments in immuno, immune, immune systems is costly, right? Yeah. You, you, so he was working with some moths um uh, pantry moths basically right that's, uh, that's dr was, that's dr bartlett yeah lewis bartlett, bartlett sorry lewis bartlett sorry i i yeah that was not the right name dr lewis bartlett from england and he's now in georgia and uh he was very compelling at presenting um how he studied uh as an extrapolation method on those pantry moths basically and he said that they managed to um uh, make them less, uh, they make them more resistant, more tolerant, more resistant to the virus that was decimating them. But that required them spending much more energy in growing time. And uh, that also made them garbage. Yeah. And, and what it sounded to me like was basically you've bred for something and introduce a, a genetic bottleneck because of you did that and you gave up a whole lot there was a lot of costs associated to that and you end up with moths that are no good when it comes to the bees you can do that and there was a um, uh, a study in europe that cost of three million euros uh, where they were trying to uh, promote uh, various sensitive hygiene to the extreme. And they ended up, what they ended up doing, because there was no direct correlation, they ended up breeding bees that were basically Africanized bees because that was the cost associated to that. Yeah. And that there's like, well, we, related to the hygienic yeah. behavior. <laughs> we, we could have saved 3 million euros Come and realized that we already have this. <laughs> yeah. We already have Africanized bees <laughs> that are very uh, um, hygienic. So if, you know, that's kind of uh, defeating the purpose. And I think that uh, in the end, we kind of lose ourselves in trying to breed for instead of against. And I think that also all that is pert pertaining to the local environment. It's all going to be different. There's never going to be a silver bullet um, best bee, right? People are like, oh, we're trying to breed for the best bee. And I think it's a mirage. It's a, it's just a non-attainable goal, especially if you're thinking that's going to apply to all locations. Beekeeping in Georgia is not the same as it is in England or in Texas even, right? right? Uh, and And so we have to also take into account the goals of each of the beekeepers. Not everybody's looking for maximum honey production. Not everybody's looking for, uh, you know, um, specific traits. We are all looking for different things. Personally, I'm willing to give up. It's a trade-off. I'm willing to give up some um, of, you know, I, the aspects that people will say are costly when you're trying to do um, survivor stock. And I'm not looking for as as much necessarily um, um, uh, productivity in numbers of bees. I'm not looking for numbers of bees like a lot of the beekeepers out there, especially in the um, commercial pollination things um, are looking for because they're looking for contract and servicing 
pollination quantity and it takes a lot more bees. I'm willing to um, give that up and in, in exchange having more tolerant, more resilient bees that are gonna do really well and adapt to the forage and the cycle and be able to produce a lot more when as the nectar flow, excuse me, <coughs> those allergies, I can't get rid of them, I swear. Uh, and, and then I get, you know, it's passionate a, about something and then it's like, I can't in, breathe. You live in central Texas and it's currently yes. cedar season. So it is, it's really bad. That. <laughs> <laughs> and when I get like excited about the subject, I, I, I don't breathe in between sentences and that's what happens. But um, yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not wanting to prevent them from swarming, for example. I think that's a great trait. I want to leverage it for different purposes like growing apiaries or potentially selling bees if I want to. Um, I don't mind propolis. I realize it's a great tool in the health of the colony when they vaporize those propolis compounds into the air to sanitize their brood nests. And, and that's what keeps them healthy. And, and for the same reason, when you open the hive and crack it open and you have all that air coming out, don't get me started on vertical beaking. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's kind of what I'm thinking with that. Uh, yeah, there's a cost to every um, breeding program. There, there, there absolutely is. Um, the, so when you were talking about Dr. Bartlett, it, they went through that moth that they were using was a, a common pantry pest, basically. Mm -hmm that would get up in there and, you know, munch on grains and, and things like that. And they found that he was really good at breeding moths <laughs> and he could breed a lot of them. But Do when they you went remember through what he said about his hair, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said he had curly hair at the time and, and granted, you know, when he was presenting, he was bald, right? Yeah, it so, was all shaved off. So. Yeah. He said, I was, unknowingly to me bringing them back to my house and they were proliferating because they were hiding in my hair. <laughs> yep, they'd get up in his curls house. and they'd get out. They were in his closets. They were in his pantries. They were everywhere. <laughs> That's why he was like, he was really good at breeding moths. Um, but the experiment when they went through and they did it, they, they found that they had two separate things. If they bred for the moths that bred faster, Mm -hmm. Those moths had weaker immune systems and could not keep up with the viral loads that would right. be introduced. If they bred for the moths that bred slower, they ended up with a lot of issues because the longer gestation and pupation cycle for that moth made it easier for predators to find it and eat it. It right. made it miss its mating cycles because then it wasn't emerging at the time frame that the other ones would. So it had fewer moths to go through and mate with at that point. And you end up with this good. moth that the only thing it was good at was fighting that one yeah. disease, Yes. but it couldn't do anything else. It, it basically was a trash, as you said, a trash moth right. that couldn't do anything. It couldn't function. And we kind of, you know, we inadvertently do that knowingly or not. Um, science, the, the imprinted cell size that is on a lot of the manufactured frames and, and oh wax sheets that was designed because in somebody's mind, it, they made the logical assumption that a larger bee could therefore carry more food mm -hmm. and would therefore produce more honey for the right. beekeepers. So they made larger cell sizes. Nobody knew at the time that Varroa was lurking in the background and going to come and that a larger cell size conveniently made room for more mites to be raised right. in those cells. And it made the bees have to go through a little bit longer of a pupation cycle. And like, yeah. There was all these trade-offs to it that that if left to the nature and their own devices in the colony, 
that would never have occurred, you know? Well, and then that's important to keep in mind that those changes, we lack humility in assuming we have the answers, first of all, and that we can breed those better than nature can with, you know, the evolutionary forces that um, pertain to like a superorganism with all those balances and mechanisms and things. There's so many parameters. If we think that we can push two or three levers and control the outcome, I think that's very arrogant to start with. But in addition, uh, all these changes we tend to do for the benefit of the beekeeper, forgetting in the process that's not necessarily beneficial to the colony of honeybees. And that goes with the type of hives. The Langstroth hives is a perfect example. The foundation that you just mentioned is another one. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and just the way we prevent them from swarming because we want to keep them like big colonies so that we can produce more honey. All this is for the beekeeper, let's be honest with you. And I'm not one to promote, you know, uh, I mean, I think there's a purpose for keeping bees for the sake of keeping bees, but I'll be honest, I'm selfish. I do want some honey a little bit. I do want my bees to, um, I want to be able to visit them and, and just kind of enjoy some of that. So there's an intrusion that's not natural uh, and it's a, it's a trade-off there again. But I'm very, I, I, I tend to think that it behooves us to follow nature and what is good for the honeybees if we want them to thrive. Because in the end, even if it's a little bit less convenient for us, it's better for them and in the end, better for us. So that's kind of the way I'm looking at this. Yeah. Um, I don't remember where it came from. So I can't do a direct quote of this. It's, it's something that I think I've even read Tom Seeley kind of like reiterated at some point in one of his books too, but in the scientific method and scientific process, the very simple act of observing anything mm -hmm. by default As already starts to change it. Yeah. Just the simple fact of observing it. So, you know, it, it, it just, there's all these other little things that come into play that we don't really think about. And you're right. It is beekeeping is 100% for the most part for the beekeeper and the bees are a sometimes afterthought at best in some of those scenarios but well, there's a spectrum right there's it a is, spectrum it is. it's an absolute spectrum and and you can have lots of good players and lots of bad players in there and it just can become very very complicated to go mm -hmm. through and try to pick through what is real and what is not um and that that kind of relates back to this that random rant at the very beginning of it is mm -hmm. you have to choose what you want to represent yourself and mm -hmm. if we're always choosing the wrong things, well, then that's what you're left with. And that's the hand you're dealt. And you've you're left with idiocracy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I said it. No, it's true. It's, it's very true. It, it's a, uh, it's a complicated and slippery slope sometimes. And, and it's, it's very easy to fall into because as a beekeeper, I can, I can tell you this as a beekeeper and two times over from raising chickens, mm -hmm. the, the simple desire, like, me growing up, I was always a very curious individual. I was one of those, I want to take it apart and see how it works. Mm -hmm. And then I want to put it back together. And then after I've done that, my brain starts coming up with ways that I can try to improve it or change it mm -hmm. or manipulate it. It's it's almost just instinctive human nature to want to meddle <laughs> in things. Right. And so improve things. Yeah. And and so like in beekeeping, when I first started learning about other other types of bees, I was then like, oh, well this lineage just sounds really cool. And I want to keep that lineage, but I also want to have some of these traits here. And so you, 
knowingly or unknowingly, you already start to tamper and meddle in the affairs of the bees by trying to purposely breed one type or breed it with another type. Right. And, and then it just, it leads on down this road. So like a two queen system, something that still to this day fascinates me. And I still find myself sometimes lying awake at night, dreaming up new hive designs that can better accommodate a two queen system. But the whole point of a two queen system is a massive honey harvest. There is nothing beneficial in that for the colony itself. You create this monstrosity that's way bigger than it ever would have been in nature. And you're pushing them really hard and you're doing all these things, but yet your brain is still like, how can I improve this? How can I make it better? How can I do this? Mm -hmm. With chickens, the combinations of things that you can come up with to get different breeds or even different egg colors or different feather colors it it's almost obsessive to some degree how it can take over your psyche and you sit there and that's all you think right. about is well if i've got this one type of rooster and he's got this set of genetic traits and i breed it to this type of hen i can get chicks that come out that all have this same you know pattern or profile we can and how often does it work really well it takes a lot of years of practice and breeding to finally get to the thing that you were originally thinking. Mm -hmm. And then you have to stop and go back and ask yourself, what good traits did you lose over those years in that selective process, just so you could get this one really pretty quote unquote blue gray chicken. And you know? how much of a genetic bottleneck is it for them now? And how much can you perpetuate that trait, right. that, that race. That's why one of the things that you, you often hear, like Natalie say a lot of times is the hybrid vigor and mm -hmm. going through and having the diversity in there because they need it. You may have a drone who carries a genetic trait that doesn't seem all that, you know, appropriate in most cases, but all of a sudden a situation happens in nature that the colony mm -hmm. needs that genetic information to know how to deal with that trait. Mm -hmm. And they've got it available. And so then those bees can kick into to gear and go through and start doing stuff. So when that drone carries that trait and mates with that queen, it may be trace amounts that are passed along right. and it may only show up in some of the bees, but right. those bees can then be called to the front line when needed. And right. other traits are the same way. They can be called to the front line when needed. So you need that, you know, the hybrid vigor, you need that variety and depth in there of genetic information to be able to make it work right. And Honestly, us tampering with stuff yeah. reduces it. <laughs> we well, lose something in the totally process. Right. That's exactly right. And what it is in the end is uh, that hybrid vigor, that genetic diversity is all the tools that they need in their bag. You might have that old screwdriver that you never use for anything, but you know, potentially one day you will need it for that one thing and that will save your life. That would be the equivalent that makes it very adaptable. The, 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 that polyandry, that multiple mating with drones that can carry some very rare traits that are most of the time not useful, but could be life-saving at some point, allows them for that plasticity, that adaptability of the entire colony to their environment and, and removing or, or narrowing that adaptability makes them much less efficient at um, uh, reacting in real time to, I got my ro vacuum robot that just kicked yeah. it up. Oh, mine, mine starts in an hour. I, I purposely <laughs> bumped her back. <laughs> well, we usually are done by the yes. time we're a little bit further out today. Um, yeah, yeah so today was a, was a backlog of other things. So we started late, but 
Um. <laughs> so, but yeah, that plasticity is exactly what uh, is good for the bees. And and human beings tinkering with their genetics and trying so hard to control the process, I think has a part to play in their vulnerability and their weaknesses because we can breed against ourselves in a way uh, by by being blind, blind to the costs and the consequences from that. Yeah. Um, well, so in a very high level perspective, um, CCD, colony collapse disorder, mm -hmm. was a perfect storm that the majority of all of the symptoms were basically created by man. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we either bred something out of the bees, introduced a foreign thing to the bees, removed something crucial that the bees needed, or put them in an artificial environment. And if yeah. you take all of these different things and then Perfect you look at the storm. reactions, right? One of those things all by itself, maybe not necessarily such a big deal. But then when you add them all together, you end up with this bee that it doesn't have its natural forage. So therefore it doesn't have its natural immunity. And then we take away what natural food it gets and we feed it artificial stuff. So its immunity goes down even further. We've bottlenecked the genetic traits of it because we're breeding for a specific bee that's only gonna produce a ton of stuff, but doesn't necessarily have the genetic vigor in there to go mm -hmm. through and have a healthy immune system. Then you introduce a pest and you introduce all these synthetic chemicals that go through and further, you know, retard things down and make it to where the drones are not as viable as they should be and genetics aren't passed on. And then you wonder why all of a sudden all the colonies are just mysteriously dying and, and vanishing, you know, and it's I, like, we did it. <laughs> I call that death by a thousand cuts, it's which exactly does kind right. of keep accumulating um, bad things against them. And in the end, they collapse, right? Uh, one too many and it throws them over the edge. It's the last straw kind of a thing. Yep. Um, I would go even further though. There was a case study that one of our apprentices just kind of uh, went through. She bought she bought a col two colonies from somebody that said they were treatment-free and um, they were getting their bees. I'm not going to name names or anything. She was uh, told that they were, well, they were coming from a supplier that turns out was treating with Apivar and, and then oxalic acid on a regular basis. So the point of this is that those bees were sold as VSH, virus sensitive hygiene. And she assumed they were treatment-free, but the point is being VSH, the sellers, the suppliers thought that was good enough for treatment-free beekeeping, even though those bees had been treated. What turns out happened is that she had a massive collapse of one, at least one of those. And, and both of them were very, very uh, damaged when uh, there was a chemical poisoning that happened and she investigated and it turns out none of her neighbors used a lot of fungicides and pesticides. So what she did, she took samples of wax and bees, sent them to Cornell University that did the analysis of what was in the wax and, and they found the apivar uh, in there. And they said in itself, it's fine. It's used by beekeepers to, to curb the varomites. But what happened here is that it compounded with the other pesticides and fungicides that were found environmentally. And in this case, one plus one is not two, but one plus one is like, I don't know, 2450. Uh, and, and it created a toxic explosion 
into right. the colony because that was still in the wax and that was still on, with the bees. Yeah. And and just like fungicides and certain pesticides and neonicotinoids as well will have a synergistic synergistic effect that is greater uh, than the sum of them individually. Um, that's what happened. You know, we say a large colony that has uh, will produce more than two halves of that colony. Right. One one good full size colony can outproduce three average colonies hand over yeah. hand. And that's kind of similar, except that now instead of the three co- uh, smaller size colony added together will be less than that one monster colony, that will be like 10,000, like, you know, 20,000, no, 20,000, 20 large colonies instead of just one. And, and so that's an interesting kind of a thing to keep in mind. In a vacuum, in the laboratory, the LD50 on the impact of those pesticides that have, uh, you know, they've got it on their labels, but once you put it in out there in reality and you've got a compounding effect from other things that are environmental, you might very well be killing your bees. Yeah. And for those out there who, who maybe don't understand that term, LD on the LD50, that's the lethal dose. Mm-hmm. And it's something that is on the back of pesticides. And it, it kind of tells you what the threshold is of how much of the solution you can have in something before you wipe everything out. And one of the issues that we found 50% of them. Right. And one of the issues that we found is that it does not take into consideration the Mm. sub lethal effects that can impair navigation and impair immune systems and all these other things, or you have something that, you know, you don't necessarily think about it, but even something as simple as diatomaceous earth, Mm -hmm. If you put it on the ground, not necessarily any big deal. If you sprinkle it up on the flowers, the small microscopic shards of glass basically is what it is in there are smaller than a grain of pollen. And the bee will go and collect that pollen. If the adult bee eats it, it's possibly detrimental because yes, it could hurt the inside of it. But what happens is they feed it to a larva Mm -hmm. and a larva is a soft, juicy worm. And diatomaceous earth is designed to desiccate, suck the moisture out of something, and then eviscerate it by cutting it up. And so you didn't necessarily hurt your adult bees, but you hurt all the babies that they then turn around and fed it to. So there's always some unintended consequence that can come along with these types of things. And it's really hard. You're you're never going to know because, again, it is that that whole adage of no good deed goes unpunished. You think you're doing the best thing you possibly can. And then there's this unintended consequence that's possibly far worse than whatever it was you were trying to prevent or, or you know, breed out or whatever. So it's a mess. It's a nightmare. Beekeeping is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> no. I, this being said, there's there's hope because I believe that if we go back to basics, to the basics of the biology of the colony and the superorganism, um, we can better understand how they function and leverage that to our advantage, leverage evolution to our advantage. I mean, you can go through, um, I think it was, I forget how many, but at least 270 evolutionary changes in a period of two or three years um, with bees. They have several generations through uh, that go through in a beekeeping cycle. So people tell you, oh, well, the viromites has evolved, co-evolved with Apicerana for millions of years. And it's unrealistic for us to think that it can um, 
happen on our in our lifetime so they need help from us well yes and no the cycles of uh, reproduction are much much faster in the honeybees than in humans and i think that's where we kind of uh, forget they can happen a lot faster than we think um there's evidence that in africa and potentially jamaica and other countries that don't have the money to spend on pesticides against the mites on acaricides on miticides um that those if those evolutionary changes have occurred in three to five years. And the point is to this uh, research from Dr. Uh, Bartlett, VSH, they started the research on that in 2007, right? There's been research from very prominent universities. A lot of money has been put into that and it's been going on for over 15 years. If it worked, we would have a solution already. If right. the pesticides worked, the miticides worked, we would be behind the problem. And there's evidence that potentially if we had not gone that way, we would not have an issue with varomites anymore. We would have taken our losses up front and the bees would have bounced back like the feral bees have. And we would be ahead of the problem and bees would have found ways to live either um, with the mites or get rid of them or or t take care of the issues that they trigger we didn't let them do that and now we're stuck to the same hamster wheel that we have been over the last 30 years yeah it's and, a great wheel and exactly like i was just saying the things that we have implemented to try and counter it have unintended consequences have backfired in some instances they they, they affect the bee in some regards you know, not to a lesser degree than the mite, but they still affect the bee. And then it builds up in the wax and it builds up in the honey and the yes. food. And like, there's all these other issues that come along with it. So a I lot mean, of things, a lot of people say oxalic acid doesn't build up in the wax, but acid, acidic environment is not necessarily in the wax, but it still has consequences on the colony and the bird's nest. Right. So there's things we don't see that are not, um obvious to us that might still take a huge toll on the colony so yeah good yeah, point unintended consequences yeah so see and i, I think we've already i i'm pretty sure i've used that title in an episode before unintended consequences um, but you see it it keeps coming back it's still a repeat kind of thing because it's a great concept and you know to circle back around to the very beginning of this what we focus on and what we give <laughs> our attention to and what we choose to put forth that is gonna have some unintended consequences <laughs> i know and it's it gives it gives all of us a, all of us a bad name is what i think it really does so regardless what it is if you are doing beekeeping if you are raising chickens if you are a natural gardener you know whatever if you're trying to help monarchs just just keep in mind that every choice you make there can be a consequence to that and there could be some other counterintuitive thing that happens that you really didn't plan for. So just make sure that you try to think through everything before you do it and, and, and that it's the best scenario or best case option out there. And that even goes along with people that you listen to and who you support. Yes. You know, I mean, if, uh, if you don't think that a specific type of beekeeping style or an individual who does that style is very good to have on the national stage, then don't participate in giving them ratings. <laughs> yes. I mean, there's, there's, there's unintended consequences there as well. <laughs> there are. <laughs> there are indeed. Oh, the lovely world we live in today. So 
Anyhow, that was a very strange and twisty uh, little little episode there, but there's some good content in the middle of it. There's some some good yeah. meat in the middle of that there for everybody to think about. So I hope that you've enjoyed. Uh, you may be scratching your head or shaking your head <laughs> either way, um, but we appreciate you tuning in and listening to us here, having our beekeeping chats, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. But as always, until then, be good. And especially be mindful. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. This Hive Jive production was made possible by amazing patrons like you, and we appreciate your support. To all our Hive Jive junkies out there, you truly are the bee's knees. <laughs>